Thank you for checking out the Mercy Hill Church Sermon Podcast. If you would like to know more about Mercy Hill, you can visit us on the web at mercyhill.cc. We have been preaching our way through the Sermon on the Mount in sort of an interesting fashion over the last many months. Because we're not only looking at what Jesus has to say in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, we're looking at the results of what Jesus had to say, both in his own lifestyle and ministry at other points of the Gospels, and how other New Testament authors pick up those teachings and apply them into our lives in other specific circumstances. And so the section that we're in right now started out in Matthew chapter 6 as we looked at wealth, worry, and the kingdom. And this is the fourth week of four that we've been looking at the issues of finance and our hearts and what's it look like to put our trust in the Lord. And so in the first couple of weeks when we were in Matthew chapter six, we learned about how Jesus urged us to store up treasure for ourselves. Where? In heaven rather than on earth. And Jesus insisted and he continues to insist. He'll get right in our face and tell us that even if we think differently, it's still true that we cannot serve both God and money, that we have to choose one or the other. And then he tells us, as Luke did a great job of unpacking for us a couple weeks ago, that we're not to worry about tomorrow, that instead of worrying, we can follow and pursue and seek the kingdom of heaven and God's righteousness instead of serving King Money. And worry is a symptom of serving King Money instead of trusting King Jesus. Now, last Sunday, we, we jumped to 1 Timothy chapter 6, and we saw how Paul unpacked to Timothy some very specific issues about dealing with money. He showed us that money is a terrible master. You do not want money to be your master. And seeking money leads to all kinds of evil and many griefs. On the other hand, God himself is a glorious and wonderful, rightful object for our pursuit, our affection, and our desire. And for us to live in this life, generosity is such a vital key for us to make sure that money is our servant instead of our master. So there's been a bunch there in these last few weeks. I invite you to take a look at the podcast or you can find those messages on our website. And one piece of last Sunday's message from First Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, that I, sorry, verse 6, that I didn't really get to dig into much is where Paul starts. It's his first sentence. And he says this that godliness with contentment is great gain. And really, we're going to be unpacking that principle this morning, but from Hebrews chapter 13, where we take a look at this key, this idea of contentment, but not just trying to define it or say it's important, but ask, so how do we actually live in contentment? So we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6. If you've got a Bible, feel free to flip it open there. Because we're going to see that the author there teaches us that we live in contentment by relating with and relying on the promise of the presence of God. Here's what it says. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5 says, keep your lives free from the love of money. I hope you catch the echo of that to 1 Timothy 6, where, where Paul warned us and he said that the love of money is a root of all kinds of what? Of evil, right? And then he said, so, but godliness with contentment is great gain. It's there. And so Hebrews 13 verse 5 says, keep your lives free from the what? From the love of money and be content with what you have. 
That's, that's an important one-liner, isn't it? Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. But he doesn't stop there. The verse continues. He says, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said something. The, the reason, the foundation for us keeping our lives free of the love of money and for being content with what we have is this. God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. And verse 6 tells us that there's a response for us to make. When God has something that he says, faith has a response that we make. And that's what's happening in these two verses. So he says, keep your lives free from the love of money. Be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, maybe we should read this together. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? And when it says man there, this is a translation from 1984. Uh, it doesn't mean man as in males. It's man as in mere mortals. What can ordinary created mortal human beings do to me if God will never leave me and never forsake me? Does that make sense? And it's so important for us to see the structure of these verses because it's not an isolated idea that is just being applied to this one issue of money. There is a structure to these verses that shows us some principles of faith that we need in all the areas of our life. So first, the author starts by giving this instruction. It's a command, not a suggestion. It's a command. He says, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. It's a straightforward Command, amen? But the basis for that is a promise. We're, we're not just being given a to-do list where the command actually flows out of a promise that God has made. And so the promise is this, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Could you just remind your neighbor, say he's never gonna leave you? Tell her God will never give up on you. Right? There's three parts to this structure. And maybe we, we get good at like two out of three, but many times we're stopping short of this third part. And the third part is, so we say with confidence, because God has said, therefore, we say with confidence. Do you see how it's structured? Here's something for us to do. Because God said, and therefore, we have a faith response. There's something that we say in response to what God said. So here in verse 6, what does it say we say? Yeah, it's like it's like we all learned a particular rhythm in elementary school when we were supposed to read and say things together, right? And it feels really artificial. But I want to encourage you this week to, to find the way to, to say it. And, and when you're saying scripture out loud, I invite you to explore different ways to say it, right? Because there's moments where you need to just bring it in low and solid. And there's moments where you need to stand up on something and shout it. And then so get your heart and your head around it by saying it, speaking it out loud. And this, this confession, this response, because God has said, 
He'll never leave me. He'll never forsake me. Therefore, I'm going to say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. There's nothing anybody else can do to me. What's happening as we do that? We're digesting what God had to say and then applying it and responding through our own hearts. We need all three steps. And when I said we sometimes stop after number two, it goes like this. Often we hear what God has had to say and we say, I know God said that, but. But what about what I'm facing? Look, I know God said that about giving and generosity, but I really don't have enough money to do that right now. I know God said that, but I just lost my job. I know God said that, but he didn't meet my mother-in-law. You know, I, I know God said, but. But that's not what the author is doing here. For us to actually respond to what God has said, we need to learn to respond with a therefore instead of with a but. The therefore is there in this case. It, it's it's the short version, the easy to spell. It's so, but it means therefore. Therefore, we're saying with confidence, our response is to take what God had to say and allow that to define how I look at my life, how I look at my situation, how I respond, rather than having my circumstance be the basis for me interpreting what God had to say. What God had to say is the basis for me interpreting the situation of my life. Are you with me? Yes? Brothers and sisters, God's promise is powerful. It is. It is so powerful. His promise of presence, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. It has the power to unlock our lives, to set us free from other temptations. Because when we've learned to live on what God has had to say, then we're safe from the lies of the world. It's what Adrian was talking about. It's so tempting that we live according to these lies from the world instead of what God has had to say. But we're only able to do that if we've learned to respond to the things that God has said. So let's take a closer look at the dynamics of some of the spiritual battles that we face when it comes to temptation. Right. So the, the command is keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. And that's a battle. Like, yeah, newsflash, you know. Yes, that is an ongoing battle. I mean, because think, what sorts of things tempt us to discontentment? Well, I mean, just like anything we see or hear is a, is a candidate, right? Uh, I mean, the challenge is that, that in the world that we live in, everything from Hollywood to the billboards on Indianapolis Boulevard to the things that our coworkers wear and use and say all of it is saying that the abundant life is found in abundance, is found in having lots of nice stuff. And what God is saying is something different. God's saying that the abundant life is found in contentment instead. And so that's where the battle comes from. There's a battle because what God is saying is something different than what the world, than our culture is saying. And God is saying for us to enjoy the abundant life that he has for us, We've got to stay free from the love of money and learn to be content with what we have. But look, the Bible isn't just telling us to do it. 
It's showing us in these verses how we go about doing that. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said. It's showing us that the key to winning the battle is to live on what God has said. And so what God has said, that's the basis for us for how we live. And God's promise, therefore, becomes the key for us winning this battle of faith. And so God's word, he's already spoken it. Faith is about your and my response to what God's already said. And there's a relationship here, a relationship that we have with the things God's spoken and how our faith engages with that, that I've I've said so far, I'm going to repeat, because God has said, we say with confidence, because God has said, what do we do? I like the with confidence part. Thanks for echoing that in. Right? Because we don't say timidly. We say confidently because if God's spoken, it's trustworthy and it's reliable. And faith is about the response that God's word demands from us. Faith responds to God's word with our words. And for those of us who try to do faith silently, you're doing faith with a handicap. You're like doing faith with one arm tied behind your back because there's a speaking part to engaging our faith that the Bible is modeling for us here. When God says something, we need to reply. I I wanted, you know, normally I would say respond, but I want to be particular that verbal replying actually matters in the battle of faith so that our response expresses agreement. It expresses acceptance. It reflects self-adjustment where I need it. It's my statement that I'm agreeing with the things that God has said. I'm going to live in accordance with it. So we know what that looks like when what God is saying is a commandment. If God says, thou shalt not kill, so we say in response, okay, I won't kill. That's pretty straightforward, right? The Bible says, do not commit adultery. We say, okay, I won't commit adultery. But the, when the Bible says, do not covet, sometimes we're not translating that into saying, so I'll be content with what I have. We're, we're parroting, we're repeating rather than having digested and responding. So I want us to look for a minute at what it looks like to translate God's promise into our life and have our response, our reply to it, be a digested one that actually is relevant to life. Because that kind of translation of faith, it's not repetition. Do you see in in verse 6? Verse 6 is not a a strict repetition of verse 5. The promise of God was this. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. And then the next verse, it doesn't say, so we say with confidence, he'll never leave me, he'll never forsake me. He'll never leave me, he'll never forsake me. It's not just a repetition of the promise. The promise has been taken in, chewed up, swallowed, digested. And now the reply is actually got application built in where it says, "Okay, I know who he is. If he never leaves me, if he never forsakes me, then the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? For those of you who are familiar with some other parts of the Bible, you may know that Paul does exactly this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 and following, where God speaks to him in the middle of a challenge that he's been asking God to take away, 
And instead of taking it away, God gives him this promise. And God says to the Apostle Paul, my grace is sufficient for you because my power is made perfect in weakness. And in the next verses, Paul does exactly what we see happening here in verse uh, verses five and six of Hebrews 13. He doesn't repeat what God says. He digests it. And then there's a response of faith that comes back where what Paul says in response is, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in the things that show my weakness, because when I'm weak, then I'm strong. So I'm going to glory in my weakness so that God's power may rest on me. If God's grace is sufficient for me because his power is made perfect in weakness, that I'm going to delight in weakness and struggle and suffering because then God's power is going to rest in me. He's taking the promise, digesting it, and speaking it back in his situation. So it matters that we hear accurately what God says and that we don't mistranslate it. You know, things get lost in translation and they can get lost in translation between our head and our heart. Hello? And so sometimes the way we're living, the the faith response of our life seems to line up more with a distortion of what God said than what he actually said. Here's what I mean. Let me start it as if God had said it in a different way. And you'll see how we might respond. Right. So if God, if what God had said was not never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. But if instead God had said, well, generally, I'm not going to be around for you and you're basically on your own. Then we would live in a certain way. If God set that up, he said, well, OK, this is the way it's going to be. Generally, I'll not be with you and you're basically on your own. Well, then we'd have to depend on ourselves for everything. He wouldn't be there to help us, right? We'd be afraid of sickness, of crime, of unemployment, government shutdowns, family disaster, death and loss of loved ones, and everything. We'd be threatened by the actions of other people. And what we would be saying with our lives, maybe not consciously, but unconsciously, we'd be saying, the Lord isn't here for me. I'm on my own. It's all up to me. But that's not what God said. But in some cases, that's how we're still living. Many of us are saying, I know what God said, but the way we're living is as if he had said something different, as if we're on our own. We don't have a helper and it's all up to ourselves. But what did God actually say? Help me out. What did he say? Never will I leave you. And so the response of our life should say what? The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Now, what if God had said, I'll occasionally leave you and sometimes forsake you? Well, then we'd live in a certain way, right? We'd pray to him. We'd ask for his help. But we'd always make sure we had a backup plan because we wouldn't be sure whether or not he would answer. We'd enjoy most of life. But when troubles would come, it would throw us right back because we wouldn't be sure if we could depend on God this time. We'd be saying this, God sometimes helps me, but I can't depend on him. I need a backup plan. That'd be, that'd be the response of our, of our lives. But that's not what God said. What did God say? Never will I say. Good, you're loosening up a little bit in saying that, right? You're making it your own a little more instead of listening to how your neighbor is saying that, right? And so we say with confidence, 
The Lord is my what? I will what? But there's so many things to be afraid of. Unless the Lord is with us. And if God will never leave me, never forsake me, then I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? So are you living on what God actually said? Or is the response of your life saying that God said something different than what God actually said? Because that's what faith is about. Having our lives actually reflect the things that God has actually said. You know, when when the author in Hebrews 13 says, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? He's not just making that up out of thin air. He's actually quoting scripture again. It's from Psalm 118, verses 6 through 7. He, but he's not quoting it exactly. He's paraphrasing it. He's owned it. He's made it his own. And he's using the word of God as the basis for his response to the promise of God. Brothers and sisters, what God is saying has not changed. Thank God the Holy Spirit has never retired. Amen. This promise from that time when the church, a few decades after Jesus had died and rose again, and the church was under pressure and persecution and struggling and suffering because of their faith in Christ. And God was breathing in a fresh way his promise, saying that he would never this from. Oh, diamond. Hmm. I think we never mentioned. Uh, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Right? That's coming out of Deuteronomy. That's Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 6, I think. And, and so be, both of those are scripture quotes in this passage from the Old Testament. And so as God is breathing afresh to his people, the promise that he had made thousands of years earlier, it's still just as true for us today. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. So when we ask, what is, what's my life saying? How does my life line up and reflect with what God's saying? Well, it's a good question, and it's worth asking, how can I tell? How can I actually tell? And here is where the beginning of verse 5 is so relevant. It's because our, our attitude and thinking about money is one of the most important indicators of whether my life is lining up with the things God's actually spoken or whether I'm living in a distortion and mistranslation of what he had to say. My attitude towards money and contentment is a crucial indicator of the health of my actual faith. Friends, I really can't emphasize this enough. If we live by what our culture is saying, we will be chronically dissatisfied, we will be always looking for more, and we'll we'll never be able to believe that what we have is really good enough. Because we'll be worrying about tomorrow, and even if we may experience happiness today when things are going well, we won't have a foundation of joy in the times of challenges that come. Instead, we must live by what God has said and not by what our culture is saying. And what God has said here is to keep our lives free from the love of money and to be content with what we have. Because the love of money is slavery. It is bondage to a bad master. What God wants us to have is freedom. And he's not trying to keep us away from something that's good. God is not trying to deprive us of something good we could have had. He actually wants something better for us. Remember, money itself is not bad. It can be a real blessing. But the love of money is slavery 
It's a root of all kinds of evils. It's an idol that will destroy your life, your family, and your faith. And so God warns us away from it for our own good so that we can live in what he intends, in the freedom he intends for us. But here's the thing. That kind of freedom, it requires constant vigilance. It's an ongoing battle. I remember in the earlier days of my wife's and my marriage, Karen and I lived up on the south side of Chicago, 61st and Kimbark. If you're ever in the neighborhood, you can drive by our, our place. And, and in our, it was a three-story building. We had a little co-op apartment there. And there was no way to get rid of the cockroaches in the building. And so we were waging war in our kitchen and pantry area constantly. It was mostly cockroaches, occasional mice. And we would eradicate them from our kitchen ruthlessly. It was chemical warfare. We had no children and we were ruthless. And and it wasn't good enough. Do you know why? Because the neighbors had them too. And and our neighbors' cockroaches would come on field trips. Like, like hey, for vacation, let's go to John and Karen's apartment. Uh, and And so we had to stay constantly vigilant about it. And it's just the same way when it comes to keeping our lives free from the love of money. It's not enough just to clear the roaches out of your own kitchen. It's not just enough to blowtorch your countertop and get rid of all of the germs. There is something infectious about the love of money. And it's in the walls. It's in the neighbors. It's in the culture. It's in your coworkers. It's in our family members. And you and I, well, we're just coming out of cold and flu season, right? It's contagious. You can catch it just like a sickness, right? When you shake hands with somebody and then you watch them cough and wipe their hands, you're like, uh-oh. You know, I want to go. So please learn to be discerning about the infectious nature of the love of money when you're in interactions with others in the culture, when you're watching advertisements on television. You know, I, I appreciated, Luke, on Wednesday night, you were talking about some of your gotcha ways of watching television and helping your children identify what's the messaging behind these advertisements, right? But if your coworker is coughing and hacking, taking a bite out of his sandwich, and then he offers you the other half, right? You've got a choice to make. You can either say, no, thank you, or you can eat the rest of the sandwich. And we do that with, uh, if he's showing off his latest model of an iPhone. And you're like, you know what? I'm still using my two and a half year old phone with a tiny screen and my eyes aren't as good as they used to be. And you know what? Maybe a newer phone would be the way everybody else has got one. Why am I the only one? And you've got to watch out. Keep your life free from the love of money. You pull your car into a parking lot and the car next to yours is a lot shinier than your own. Keep your life free from the love of money and do what? Thank you. Connect the rest of the verse. Be content with what you have. And here's the key. Staying free from the love of money, this idea of being content, they're two sides of the same coin. We stay free from the love of money by cultivating contentment. And we do that by relying on the promise of God's presence. One of the, one is negative. Keep your life free from the love of money. One is positive. Be content with what you have. Choose, you know, you can't be content if you love money. No man can serve two masters. The love of money or contentment, choose one. We can only have one. Uh, someone as rich and as wise, at least in his earlier years, as King Solomon said this in Ecclesiastes. Um, do we have that there? Yeah. Whoever loves money never has what? 
never has enough. Whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. So how's that going to turn out? This too is meaningless. Friends, loving money steals the treasure that we have. We don't get rich, we become poor. If we love money, we won't even be able to enjoy what we do have because we'll be striving for more. And the alternative that God is giving us is promise-empowered contentment. It's not be satisfied with less. It's keep your heart filled with what is greater and what is better. Now, let's remember, this is a trap we can fall into whether or not we have money. The danger and the issue here is not whether we have a lot or whether we have a little. These temptations, this battle, they don't depend on whether we have a little money or a lot of it. What it depends on is not how much we have, but whether we're living on God's promise of presence. So what's it look like to live in this kind of contentment? Well, the verse says, be content with what you have. Be content with what you have. It's not be content with what you used to have. And for some of us, uh, well, we've, we've most, most of us grew up in North America. And, and you know, it's hard for people from North America to do without air conditioning when they travel to certain parts of the world. If you're used to having something, it can be hard to do without it and to live without that for a while. Going on a diet is really hard because our body has been used to having more of richer things. But we've got to realize the people who got this letter in the first place, the, the people to whom the author is writing in these verses, they're people who themselves recently lost stuff that they used to have. In many cases, their homes and other possessions. If you go back a couple chapters to chapter 10 in Hebrews, you'll find the author is referring to them having had possessions confiscated as part of their persecution for following Jesus. These, this is a word to people who used to have more. And the word is be content with what you have now without saying, oh, these are just the leftovers. It used to be good. It was the temptation that God's people faced in the desert when they thought even back in their days of slavery, they got better food than they were getting to have by miracle in the desert. So here's the result, guys. We cannot live in the past. For many of us, life used to be more comfortable than it is now. But the word isn't be content with what you used to have. It's be content with the provision of God today. And then similarly, it's not be content with what you wish you had. This, this is this is the look of the pastor when he realizes what time it is uh, and is now having to make some choices. It's still quiet downstairs. Are you good? Thank you. It's not be content with what you wish you had. It's so easy to fall prey to the temptation that says, look, I'd be content if I just had a little bit more. And that's what happens with advertising, with what we watch on TV when we're comparing with others around us. But watch out. Jesus said in Luke 12, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. And one of the most powerful kinds is where we start to feel like we deserve it to be a little better 
Sometimes because we've put up with less for as long as we have. Many of us have experienced, though, the, the idea of we buying something that we thought that we really needed and was really going to make us happy and discovering that there's an emptiness that comes in that. It doesn't work out. And the reason for that is that Jesus is the only one who can really satisfy. The one who only one who can touch that part of our insides that's longing for more is the Lord himself. And what was his promise? Because God has said, what? Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. It is about his presence. It's resting on his promise that sets us free from these temptations. Listen, it's not just an issue for individuals and families, but for congregations as well. And many of us are more recent additions to this church, uh, but we're coming up on the 10th anniversary of Mercy Hill starting. Uh, Yeah, it's it's just a beautiful thing to see what the Lord has done. And 10 years ago, there were courageous individuals and families who were willing to say, well, if God's with us, we're going to go for it. It, Because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you, we're going to not be afraid of whether this is going to turn out well, or what's going to happen, or how are we going to be able to find a place to meet, and how are we going to be able to do all of this. But we're trusting the promise of his presence and wanted to bring a testimony of the presence of God. Mercy Hill has never been about promoting Mercy Hill. We want people to get to know Jesus because he alone can satisfy and fill and transform lives. And so this area of overcoming fears and walking in faith, that's how this church began. That is, And we've seen through the years God providing in such remarkable ways. We're in this building because of God's gift. God provided for us in this building. In this building, it's fantastic and it's limited. It's got so many great ways that it serves us as a family. And there's ways where there's headaches and limitations and shortcomings that come with it. But the word of the Lord is still be content with what we have. And let us not ever say, well, God, if you just gave us this or that that we don't have, well, then we could do what you say. No, let's keep walking in the faith that says, God, whatever you say, we know we can do because your presence will be enough. For us to do it. Does that make sense? When we prize the promise of presence, we're free to live on mission instead of worrying about our own resource. You know, many of you know that our family spent some years living in Zambia. And the fact was we had everything that we really needed. Everything that our family, we had a good place to stay. We had ways to get to the places we needed to go. We had the food that we needed. The fact was we didn't bring all of our stuff when we moved to Africa. That would have been difficult. And one of the things, a category of things that we did not bring with us were toys for the children. <laughs> and uh, and so I, I, it's kind of embarrassing in retrospect. I took a lot of books and we didn't take toys for the kids. Um, and so there were many times that our kids would remember a toy that they had had here in the U.S. and they'd miss it and we'd have to explain and say, well, yeah, that, that was really nice when we had that, but we don't have that here. I just remembered the number of times that we said over and over, but we don't have that here. Sometimes it was stuff. Sometimes it was access to, to conveniences or other things. And we'd be saying, but we don't have that here. And brothers and sisters, this world, this is not our home. The life that we're living here in the body, there's going to be many times where we need to say to ourselves, yeah, that'd be great. 
But we just don't have that here. But we will have that in the day that we go to our home where Jesus is already preparing that for us. He's got a place for us and we'll be content with him. Even where we're saying, yeah, we don't have that here because God's promise deals with our fears. God's promise really deals with our fears. Did you see how in verse six, the response says, the Lord is my helper. I will what? I'll not be afraid. Where did that come from? Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. Oh, great. I won't be afraid. Yes, it's connected because our love for money can very often be related to our fears for the future. I'm worried what's going to happen tomorrow. And God's saying, my presence is enough. Fear enters because temptation uses our fears as handles to grab onto our hearts and pull. But God's promise deals with our fears. Fear of financial ruin, fear of losing my job, fear of not being able to afford health care, fear of not having enough. There was a morning years years ago when both of my kids were small, when when one of them, um, I was dad, dad at home for breakfast and we're having Cheerios and one of my daughters wanted a strawberry, strawberries with her Cheerios. And so I picked out this ginormous strawberry. It was like the biggest strawberry. And I gave it to her and she immediately told me it wasn't enough. Uh, because one wasn't going to be enough. And I, I tried to explain. I said, well, when you're done with this one, I'll give you another. Look, there's more here. She could see the other container. And she said, no, this isn't enough. I need more. I said, no, when you need more, I'll give you more. And, and so now, now we're like getting into parent-child trench warfare. Um, sort of thing where I'm digging in and she's digging in. And because for me now, it's not about the strawberries. It's about the principle of the things, you know, and, and, and it wouldn't have hurt me a bit to give her a couple of strawberries, you know, but I like, no, you'll, you'll take what I give you when I give it. I realize, oh, nuts. The Lord's talking to me, not to her about this. You've never had that happen to you, have you? Right? Um, because there's so many things in my life that are like that strawberry where it's it really is plenty for now, but I want to find my security in having more instead of trusting that my Father in Heaven will give me something just as good when this one is done. And and it's so and that's is where the promise is so important. God is pulling us to Himself to trust Him in relationship with Him. And so when He calls us to say, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have, He's not asking us to do that separately from him. But because God said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. He's pulling us to himself because the promise of his presence is a covenant promise. This is God's way of assuring his own children that he will never leave us, never forsake us.